but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Brooks Barron is an experienced leadership coach who specializes in nature-based initiations and rites of passage. He helps leaders he works with to explore their vulnerability, find their inner wisdom, and surrender to the flow of whatever wants to come through them. In our conversation today, you can expect to learn Brooks's definition of wholeness as a human being, the difference between the desire to make an impact in the world from above the line versus below the line, how he personally shifted out of victim consciousness and was able to take full responsibility for his life. And we also delve into the dynamics of being nice versus being kind, the importance of vulnerability, and the benefits that Brooks sees in going through a wilderness-based vision quest or rite of passage, and how this practice can enable us to transition into psychological adulthood. Okay, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brooks. I made the decision to work with sponsors for this podcast, and there are two main reasons for this. The first is that it helps me dedicate more time and resources to having deep dive conversations like this one and hopefully growing the show. And the second is that there are a few companies that have honestly made a big difference in my life. And since I consider them to be just such a huge value add, I'm genuinely excited to talk about what they offer and I hope they'll be useful to you as well. First up is Inside Tracker. One of the things that I've changed my mind on in the past year or so is the value of getting blood panels taken on a regular basis, ideally every six months, according to Dr. Peter Atia. This is opposed to waiting until you have an actual health issue. Inside Tracker tests your blood, your DNA, and they basically provide clear science-backed recommendations around nutrition, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle recommendations. They've also recently added hormone testing alongside a bunch of other really important biomarkers that aren't typically included in traditional blood panels, and APOB is a good example. And for myself, despite generally feeling pretty great, my most recent set of results showed that I have some pretty major work to do to reduce levels of inflammation. So I'll be following some of their dietary and supplement recommendations to hopefully address this. So I really recommend making this something that you make time for at least once or twice per year. And you can save 20% at insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. That's insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. Next up, we have The Plunge. I reached out to the founder of The Plunge, Ryan, after hearing his personal story on Danny Miranda's podcast. And I've shared many times how getting in icy cold water every day helps me to move through some pretty intense grief in the past. And it taught me what it meant to surrender. And these days I use their plunge pretty much every single day. It's, it's basically like a high stakes meditation or a mirror to my own internal state. And the plunge team have done a phenomenal job architecting what I really consider to be the best cold plunge in the world. And it doesn't get grimy, unlike the, the converted chest freezers that I used to use. And for optimal health benefits, I recommend 
doing this deliberate cold exposure for about 11 minutes per week in total. And if you're interested, you can save $150 on their full unit at plunge.com forward slash curious. That's plunge.com forward slash curious. And this episode is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my flagship five-week bootcamp designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate calm, conquer reactivity, and build emotional regulation. Our fourth cohort will be running in April 2024, and applications are open right now. And my sense is that if this conversation and others like it on the podcast resonate with you, then you'd likely be a great fit for the upcoming cohort. This curriculum represents my attempt to distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. It's run in an intensive cohort-based way, since this is in my experience the most efficient way to not only learn the information, but also embody the protocols in your everyday life. Previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep, the quality of their relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 750 students complete this training, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more details and apply to join the next cohort at nsmastery.com. That's nsmastery.com. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Brooks. Thank you so much, Johnny. Great to be here with you. How are you feeling in this moment in three words? Mm. I feel excited, joyful, and just a little bit scared. <laughs> Excellent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a good mix. Do you, if you think back to your, to your early days, do you feel like you were an exceptionally curious child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think a place where my curiosity really shined as a kid was uh, spending time in nature. So the memory that came to mind was, uh, was lucky to spend time growing up in the heart of the Colorado Rockies at a family property uh, not far from where I live now. And my, my younger brother and I used to run around in the woods with little sticks that were like our swords or lightsabers or something and we'd charge after imaginary dragons or enemies or uh create adventures together so very imaginative kid and then and then my curiosity is like what's around the next corner you know and what what's it gonna be like if i what could i could i climb a little higher on that mountain and if so what am i gonna see up there yeah i i love that it um i think my sense of adventure kind of came through video games, which is probably a less, <laughs> a less healthy outlet <laughs> playing, playing Zelda and Dungeons and Dragons and things. But uh, no, I, I really love that. And for listeners, for some context here as well, you're now involved in this wilderness-based leadership work. So that completely tracks from your, from your childhood. Um, what was your path into this work? Because I, you know, I'm imagining you didn't do a career test in school and they were like, oh, you're going to be a wilderness-based <laughs> vision quest guide. Like that wasn't an option as far as I was aware on the career test. So how did you kind of meander your way into this particular? Mm. Well, it's a great 
question and there could be an answer to that that would take quite a long time so I'll I'll see if I can summarize it but it really tracks back to you know yeah that kind of childhood experience and that sense of that sense of expansiveness and wonder and what I would call now full aliveness and presence like just that experience of being so completely engrossed in the magic of what's here now. And I think I got to touch that in nature as a kid and it never left me. And I was an ambitious young kid, you know, worked hard in school and did well and got some fancy diplomas and uh, wanted to make a really positive impact in the world. I wanted to kind of give back to nature having gained so much from it as a kid. And I became very concerned about the environment and in particular climate change and kind of dove into the policy realm and then the business realm, trying to make uh, as big of an impact on those issues as I possibly could. And somewhere along the line, I could no longer escape the fact that even as what I was doing was objectively having a positive impact on, say, net carbon emissions, it wasn't getting me anywhere close to that feeling of aliveness and quite the opposite. It was, I was, I was burning myself out and just had to face that my mental idea of what I should be doing wasn't aligned with the feedback I was getting from my, my body and my soul. So I, I kind of went out to nature in a sense, uh, seeking answers. Um, when I was in my mid twenties, Halfway through my journey of uh, my MBA program at Stanford, I was not your average Stanford MBA, and uh, I found myself out on a vision quest uh, with the Animus Valley Institute at the end of that summer, driven by this deep desire to find a way to imbue my life and my work with that sense of meaning and purpose and aliveness that I knew was possible. And uh, that experience was truly profound, truly life-changing. And since then, I just started following that feeling of aliveness more than my, you know, intellectual ideas of how to optimize my impact. I decided just to let myself, and it wasn't that simple, of course. It was a multi-year journey of ebbs and flows and inner conflicts. And, but slowly but surely, yeah, just found my way into into the work I do now, a combination of, of wilderness leadership work and, and coaching work and guiding work, simply by letting myself be guided by kind of that which lights me up and makes me come alive. Mm -hmm. So I, I just talked to Jim Dethmer, actually thanks to your introduction yesterday, and mm -hmm. a lot of our conversation focused on aliveness. And, and I actually feel like this might be, it might be an interesting segue in, in the sense of one of the things I wanted to explore with you was you wrote an essay that was basically describing how our desire to avoid being a bad person is inherently limiting. And I think it also limits our aliveness as well. In your own words, how might it actually be in our interest and others to, to not strive to be good? Like, can you speak to this? Because I think this will be an, like quite a reframe for a lot of people listening who are like, no, I, I don't want to be a bad person. I, I do want to be a good person. Uh, what is he talking about? <laughs> yeah, great. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course we want to be good. And I'm so one of those people, <laughs> you know, that's how I came to write that essay is having 
lived that experience myself and, and it still being a part of my reality. But through my journey, what I've come to believe is, and what I've, what I've seen in myself and in many other people who I've, I've worked with is that essentially any time that we are creating kind of a false binary within ourselves and saying it is better to be one way than it is to be another way, you know, in the language of, of Jim Dethmer and Diana Chapman and the conscious leadership group, that's a signal that we're below the line, meaning we're experiencing life from a state of threat. We're kind of in this right or wrong binary view. And that's a totally understandable, natural and normal place to be. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And it's actually limiting because it takes us out of our wholeness. Wholeness from, in my view, is an experience of complete freedom to be completely ourselves, completely authentic, to access within us, you know, any part of ourselves, freedom to go wherever we want to go within. And I believe that every last one of us human beings has within us the full spectrum of human possibility from, you know, the lightest of the light to the darkest of the dark. And we also have these ego identities or personalities that, you know, make up these stories about some of those possibilities being okay and some of those not being okay. It's a nuanced point, but what I've found is when I catch myself creating that kind of binary and pause and pull back and recognize, oh, okay, this is a sign that I'm scared. I'm in a state of threat and see, let's see if I can slow down and accept myself for being scared, give myself some love and compassion, recognize it's completely human and okay to have these kind of judgments of others or myself. And then it really, the shift is really choosing to come from, instead of coming from a place of fear and threat, it's choosing to come from a place of love and trust initially within myself. So this involves like being curious and getting to know the quote unquote bad parts of me and understanding where they come from and starting to play with the opposite of my stories around those parts and kind of see if I can open my mind to kind of seeing things in a new perspective and recognizing that uh, maybe things aren't so black and white. Maybe there's actually certain circumstances in my life where you know, an example from my life is like a, a part of me that I might judge as bad is like an aggressive, my aggressive part. And I fear being, you know, a, a bad, aggressive man who causes harm and hurts others. And yet there are moments in my life where that aggression is actually really in service. You know, a recent, a recent experience I had was my dog got attacked by two other dogs and there was a, a oh man, yeah, it was really scary. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Moose. And uh, he, you know, there was a, there's a pit bull locked onto Moose's neck, skin, like the skin of his neck. And oof, yeah, and, and he wasn't letting go. And we, the, the, you know, we were, re the other owner was there and we were trying to wrestle them apart. And um, gratefully, I was able and willing to access my inner aggressive. And I kind of last resort had a moment of, wow, this could be like the end of Moose's life if I don't do something right now. And what I did was I started kicking 
the other dog in the jaw as hard as I possibly could. And it took about three kicks and they finally knocked him loose. And Moose is okay. And wow, I don't know if I ever would have been able to do that had I not done the work that I've done around challenging my own judgments of what parts of me are good and what parts of me are bad, what are okay and what are not okay. And instead shifting to a choosing to believe that actually maybe all parts of me have good potential within them or, you know, genuine worthiness, all parts of me. What if all parts of me and all parts of all of us are actually worthy of being here? And the challenge for us is to open the possibility of choice, like to be able to consciously choose in the moment, what is the attribute or the way of being that is actually going to serve me and my people right now in this moment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you for that story. I felt something imagining another dog doing the same thing to Lola and how I think my inner aggressor would, would definitely come out as well. I think I'm, I'm still curious to kind of unpack this like good, bad dynamic a little bit more. And, and for me, where it's, where it's historically shown up in my life is the distinction between being nice versus being kind. And how, for me, the desire to kind of be nice and to basically like be a people pleaser to some degree and to avoid saying things that might cause hurt or disappointment in others, that was actually holding me back from, from deeper connection. And it sounds like one of the ways in which this dynamic showed up in your life was around the impact, like where you were basically sacrificing your, your own aliveness to have a positive impact in like quotation marks. So what was like, how was that dynamic showing up? And, and you mentioned that like you were trying to make an impact from below the line, which you, you said implies that you had some kind of like fear or lack of safety. So, so what can you, can you speak to what that dynamic was for you and how it shifted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the, f that's is exactly right. I was coming from a place of fear and experience of of lack of safety and threat. And what it was, was I think driven by a deep desire to be loved, to be loved, to be accepted, to be celebrated, to be seen by others as a good person so that I could have that safety of being loved. So if you, if you kind of trace that to the root, the root of that pattern was a lack of love inside of me. Like they're not, it was an experience. I was creating an experience of there's not enough. I don't have enough love. And that's really scary. You know, uh, that feels, uh, unsafe. So I'm going to push myself to be so good to kind of prove to the world that I'm so awesome that everybody's going to love me. Now, I didn't consciously realize that was what I was doing at the time, uh, but with retrospect and having, you know, having done enough of my own work and built enough awareness, I can say for sure that was exactly what was going on on the deeper levels. So then from there, the shift was slowly but surely over time committing to a practice of being the source of all of the love that I need me, that, myself being a, did you have a question? Yeah. Just that reminds me of, of Jim's kind of shift from like 
at me to then by me or through me. It seems like that was kind of the, the shift that you're speaking to. Yeah, that's right. From it's from to me to, to buy to, me. To me. Yeah. yeah. So the shift of, mm -hmm. yeah, like life is happening to me. I'm at the effect of, I'm a victim at the effect of my circumstances. That's to me consciousness shifting to buy me. Consciousness is taking, I take, I'm the empowered creator of my own experience of my life. And I take 100% responsibility for myself. And, uh, yeah, this is, um, so this is exactly some of the mentorship and, and healing work that I did in my training with, with Jim and Diana and CLG was, yeah, the conscious leadership group is this, this commitment around choosing to be the source of all of the approval, control, and security that I desire. And for me, again, the big one, yeah, especially around this pattern of, of needing to be good was, uh, approval. So it relates to what I was saying before in the, my kind of first answer to the question around welcoming and loving, choosing to love these different parts of myself that I historically would have, you know, driven away or tried to hide from and essentially just really devoting to opening, opening my heart to myself with so much acceptance and love that I was no longer at the effect of what other people thought of me, that I could then move from a place of more genuine authenticity because there's no scarcity anymore of love. I have all the love that I need. Okay, beautiful. So from here, you know, what feels exciting? What draws me to it? What feels beautiful and inspiring and what makes me come alive? I'm going to go do that. And of course it just so happens kind of <laughs> ironically that's, um, it's been since choosing to make that shift that I would say I've actually started to make an impact that I feel proud of with my work and in my life. And, but it's been coming from that place of love and the, just the natural generosity. I believe that love is our essence as human beings and therefore love and generosity is simply what naturally flows through us when we allow ourselves to open, when we shift out of a state of fear and threat and contraction and into a state of openness and trust and love, we are love. So we give love. So coming back to the word impact, it's still a word that I, I think I struggle with, or I am skeptical of using for myself because to my mind, or at least maybe this is like a, an, an older definition is, is kind of measured by something that happens in the external world. And so you could justify why spending your time on, let's say, you know, fixing climate change is better than looking after your kids or caring for someone who's dying, you know, things like that. And so I think I'm like, I'm very wary of that word because mm -hmm. to me, at least it does seem like it has this kind of tie to what happens in the external world and is this good or bad, basically. So yeah. how do you relate to it? And, and how do you kind of like bypass that trap? It's such a good question, Johnny. And I, I'm wary of it too, you know, especially given my history with it, where I wrapped my, I tied myself in so many knots around this pursuit of, of impact. You know, I was, uh, I was really in bad sorts, you know, when I ended up going out on that first vision quest, that came from a place of real desperation. And a lot of that desperation was, uh, you know, the burnout that I felt as a result of 
being so maniacally focused on this big global problem of climate change. And so, you know, yeah, like incapable, feeling, feeling incapable to actually do anything about it. But I was stressing myself out about it so much that I was kind of neglecting my entire life. And yet, you know, even as I have walked this personal healing journey and even I would say kind of more and more so, I still find myself looking out at the world and feeling a lot of sadness, feeling a lot of anger, feeling a lot of fear around uh, some of the realities that we are living in as a species. And it's a it's an edge for me too. And I would say it's probably the bleeding edge of my practice and an arena where I still feel like a beginner is, you know, what does it look like to be driven by impact from above the line, from a place of openness and curiosity and trust, which inherently means that I'm also in a place of full acceptance, that I can fully accept and welcome reality and the present exactly the way that it is, that I can let go of my need to control the world out there and make it different. And for me, that involves kind of recalling and recalling that there's a much greater intelligence moving through the universe than I am privy to or can possibly understand. Maybe I get glimpses of it in some moments, but by virtue of being a human being in, in this consciousness, you know, it's not entirely for me to see. So can I come back to that place of trust and maybe even open to the, the idea that the world is as it is right now for me and maybe even for us to, to help me wake up, to help me keep learning, to help me keep expanding. And it's paradoxical, but I do believe that it's possible to hold that space of trust and acceptance, you know, from which I'm also genuinely caring for myself, caring for my life, caring for those who I love and also kind of taking a big swing at, let's see if we could build something better, because why not? And because even if the world is already perfect the way it is, uh, yeah, why not? Why not see if we can make it even more beautiful? Could there be a more exciting and fun and inspiring orientation mm. to life than that? Mm. Yeah, I love that idea and the kind of philosophy behind that. Something I wanted to touch on was you mentioned that you went to your first vision quest when you were quite desperate. And mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I guess I have a curiosity of like, does anyone go on a, a vision quest when everything in their life is awesome? Like, <laughs> is that, is it almost like a requirement that like you are going through some kind of personal existential health crisis for it to even be of use or, or relevant? Mm. And yeah, yeah. Like, like both, what are your thoughts on that? And what are the benefits that you got from this, from this vision quest? And why would it be something that let's say someone listening is going through a challenging time? Why might it be something for them to consider when they're like, no, actually I just need some therapy or I need a break or like, mm -hmm. you know, all of the usual responses. Yeah. Wow. What a great question. There's so much in, in there to start with the first part of the question, you know, do you need to be desperate to go out on a vision quest? Uh, I would say it certainly helps. It is an opportune moment because uh, to me that aspiration signals that there is a deeper level of change or transformation within yourself 
and your life that is ready to pop. And the nature of a quest, especially, and then I think it's important to bring in some cultural context here too, like in our sort of modern Western uh, secular society, I would say often, if not always, there is some level of desperation among the people who choose to go out on a vision quest. And part of that is because it's not something that is necessarily part of or encouraged by our mainstream culture. It's a countercultural choice and it involves intentionally letting go of a lot of the things our culture prizes, at least for a short amount of time, you know, like being out alone in the wilderness with no food for several days. It requires some level of motivation to do that for sure. So that motivation can come from desperation and, and often I think does in terms of like our modern present day Western culture, historically it, it wouldn't necessarily need to, uh, and also in current nature-based societies, you know, indigenous societies around the world who many of whom are maintaining these sorts of rite of passage or initiatory practices where it's an expected part of human development. And when a, when a young person, an adolescent person reaches the right moment, you know, and different cultures have different ways for kind of defining when that moment is, that young person would be initiated in this way. And it would be seen as, you know, beautiful moment of reaching the next layer of their potential. And then the one thing more thing I'll say on this for now is, you know, kind of circling back to the second part of your question, the reason that a vision quest is different than going to therapy and kind of how a person could know what's the right fit for them or what is going to get them more of what they want. To me, it comes down to the question of, are you wanting to remain in your current identity and your current way of being? Are you wanting to kind of hold yourself together and maintain the status quo? Or are you wanting to fundamentally transform and shift into a new phase? And what characterizes a vision quest in, in my perspective and, and certainly in the indigenous traditions that I've studied and learned about is a very clear sort of death and rebirth process, like part of going out on the, it's a ceremonial death journey. And certainly the way that I guide them today, you know, it's always an invitation. The, the quester has to choose for themselves if they're ready for that or to what extent they're ready for that. But there's a very explicit opportunity to enter into direct conversation with that which is greater than ourselves. So with spirit, with mystery, and with mother nature, and essentially declare, these are the parts of my life or the parts of my identity or the parts of myself that I'm willing to let go. And you can feel the undercurrent here of like, this is a shift into trust. This is a choice to relinquish control and say, mystery, I recognize how much more wisdom you have than me. And I surrender to that wisdom. I give you my life in trust that you'll give me back everything that serves and you'll let go everything that doesn't. And then there's this magical way that wild nature and wild beings and wild places kind of mirror and amplify and accelerate that process and, and respond. And, and also, uh, the dream realm plays a role working with dreams is a big part of the way that I, that I've been trained and that I guide 
vision quests. Uh, it's another kind of portal into the mystery and, and our souls and uh, a way to kind of go around the conscious mind and the ego identity. So a rite of passage like a vision quest, in my view, has this very intentional death of the old identity and this kind of surrender and opening up to receiving and being guided by something greater than ourselves. Whereas, you know, a sort of lower stakes approach like psychotherapy, at least I would say depends on the therapist maybe, but most therapy I would judge in our culture is going to be more oriented towards kind of uh, helping you put yourself back together and make, and certain make some incremental improvements, you know, make help things get a little easier or be a little, have more healthy relationship with yourself in your life. And there's a really valuable role for that. I, I don't mean to, you know, criticize that work at all. It's crucially important, but I do think it's critical for us to also kind of be clear about what's the role it's playing and what are we, you know, what's, um, what's the role that it's playing and what else are we seeking? And is there something beyond that might actually get us what we really want? Yeah, thank you for that answer. So it, it sounds like there's almost like a fork in the road where you can decide, okay, I'm going to be more functional if I, more useful in the short term if I go to therapy, or I'm going to die and <laughs> like go into like, let's say like maybe short term di dysfunctional in the beginning. And something you mentioned earlier was that, that these initiations help people to reach their full potential. And I think that might not be an obvious connection for people. So can you explain, because <laughs> I mean, it sounds ridiculous on the surface of like, how does letting go of all these identities and ceremonially dying was the phrase that you used. How does that enable someone to reach their full potential? Like, cause that sounds insane and absurd. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Right. It does. And especially again, like in our culture today, like going through that kind of process, does in, in some ways maybe create some dysfunction in the sense that at least dysfunction as it might be judged by the mainstream view in the sense that like coming off of a vision quest, we are likely to not just go back to our kind of nine to five job and be uh, little productivity monkeys grinding out, you know, like it's, it's so like, and that could be a problem. That can be a problem, you know, if that's the way that you've built your life, that, that that's that you rely on that job for your livelihood. It's yeah. So like this kind of experience can really shake things up. And again, I think in a healthier nature based culture there, we would have systems and customs and elders who have been that through that kind of transformation themselves to guide the initiates. And the culture would kind of know, people would know as, you know, the initiate comes home to the village that they're not their same person anymore. So they wouldn't be expected to be. In our culture, people often expect us to, to stay the same consciously or, or unconsciously and, and actually have quite a difficult time with allowing others to change. Well, I think it's unfamiliar is a big part of it. Like it's um, for someone who hasn't gone through this kind of experience to self to themselves to see someone else do it is maybe kind of going to push them into the unknown. And it's going to challenge the ideas of like, whoa, you know, does this mean that I have to change too? I think that's a major part of it. And, you know, again, that's kind of a function of the consciousness that, that we're living in that prioritizes that the ego consciousness, you know, ego wants to maintain control and is therefore scared of change and generally going to resist change. So when we see, you know, someone, a colleague or a loved one or a friend who is radically transforming, that's kind of scary because it shakes our idea of like, 
what's possible for ourselves or what, what should we be doing? And uh, is this going to mean I'm going to need to change too? And I think that can connect us back to that other piece of your question around reaching our greatest potential. So I think Bill Plotkin of the Animus Valley Institute has a really useful model to bring in here, which is the model of, I believe he calls it the eco-soul-centric human development wheel or something along those lines. <laughs> it's one hell of a mouthful. Yeah. It's a worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a great framework. And the, the, but but the, the essential idea that I would pull from it is this, the idea that the difference between, there's a difference between psychological adolescence and psychological adulthood. And that difference essentially is that when we are psychologically adolescent, it doesn't matter actually how many years of age we've lived on this earth, but from a psychological development standpoint, when we're in this adolescent stage, our ego is primarily focused on serving its own needs. And that's where we get you know, caught up in that resistance to change, for example. When we've made the transition into psychological adulthood, our ego has gone through this death and rebirth process. It's fallen apart. We've allowed ourselves to, to descend into soul, as Bill says, to dissolve and, and fall apart so that we create an opening to connect with an even deeper part of ourselves which Bill calls soul. It's this part of ourselves that is inherently connected to the divine. It's infinite and timeless and part of a much greater story than our human lifetime. And yet also connected to the special uniqueness of this lifetime and maybe holding the keys, the blueprints for the greatest potential that we could have in this lifetime. And so when we make it to psychological adulthood, we've gone through that journey of the descent to soul. Our ego has fallen apart and died, then been reborn and rebuilt itself to be to act primarily in service of soul. So psychological ego or adolescent ego operates in service of itself. Adult ego operates in service of soul. And if you believe like I do that our ego identities and personalities are part of us, but just a very small sliver of the greater truth of who we really are, then it would follow that to really reach our full potential, that would require us to transcend that smaller self and open to this bigger, more mysterious self. I like that. What do you mean by the wound is the gift and how does it relate to what you just shared? Mm. Yeah, that phrase uh, refers to the idea of the sacred wound. And I'll use a metaphor again from Bill Plotkin here because it's very helpful, I think. He writes about how the pearl of an oyster is actually created thanks to a little grain of sand that gets stuck inside the shell and creates just enough discomfort, just enough of an abrasive wound that the oyster is motivated to uh, cover it up and it actually creates the pearl around this grain of sand. So this beautiful essence, this gift of the oyster is only there thanks to a wound. And so the idea of a sacred wound and, and the wound is the gift is to suggest that perhaps there's a greater reason why each of us as humans has some wounding. And I don't think it's too radical of a thing to say that uh, we each do, that it seems to be a natural element, a natural piece of 
coming of age or growing up being a human that we each carry some kind of wounding from our childhood? I, I actually don't have any. I, I escaped that space. <laughs> you had to tell me more about how you pulled that off. <laughs> yeah. No wounding here. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And many of us would love to believe that. Yeah. I, I like, I actually hear people say that seriously often and which, you know, I think is related to the fact that it's really actually scary and uncomfortable to confront our wounds and sometimes even to acknowledge them. Yeah. And I think also expanding the definition of what wounding means, because some people are like, well, I wasn't sexually abused as a child, didn't, you know, have any kind of like enormous traumas. So therefore I'm not, I think, so I think it's like expanding or maybe shifting the definition. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I, I very much relate to that. You know, part of my, a big part of my story was for some time, you know, in my early journey with, with the work that I do today was and actually it relates back to impact too. It's a part of the kind of fear-driven motivation to impact that I had as a young man was recognizing my own privilege, how lucky I am to have been born into this body and this life and this family and these circumstances. I've been given so much and there was a fear that lived inside of me that I'm not worthy of that. I have to earn that or justify that. It's not okay and it's not fair and there's so much value to this voice. Like, it's not fair that I get all of this and, you know, other people don't, other people have, you know, incredible. So yeah. So like the relative scale of wounding and trauma, I think is, a, yeah, very real and important to bring in. And at the same time, I did have wounds and, and ironically kind of my wounding was wrapped up in that, in my circumstances of privilege. It's almost like no matter what our circumstances are, we're going to find some way to be hurt by them. You know, in this case, it was like, wow, I've been given so much. My life is so good. Oh no, I'm not worthy of that. Right? So there's this idea that, well, so I, I asked the question, well, maybe, you know, that, and Bill Plotkin writes about this too, you know, maybe, maybe that's by design. Maybe there's a greater reason why we are that way, that our personalities find some way to feel hurt by whatever our circumstances are. And in my experience with that, it, it, uh, it rings very true. And, you know, if I were to take a shot at, you know, what that reason might be, my best, my best sense of it is that it's exactly that vulnerability. It's exactly that place of hurt that drives us to continue to deepen and expand our consciousness, to continue to do our own healing work, to go through an experience like the descent to soul, right? Coming back to that, again, that experience of the value of desperation, being wounded in some way, having some kind of vulnerability or, or pain that it's like a, something that calls us to tend to ourselves and to step out of just the usual routines and maybe open up to a more radical possibility, maybe take radical action, like going out on a vision quest. And then through that process, we find our own way of healing ourselves. We seek and pull together the medicine that we need for our particular wounding, whatever that may be. And then that gives us something very unique and, and special and powerful to offer to the world. By virtue of the fact that each of us human beings are such unique, we are so unique, 
No human experience is exactly the same. No human wounding journey is exactly the same. No human healing journey is exactly the same. So if you commit to really tending to your wound, even trusting it, honoring it, revering it as sacred and following its call, in my experience, where that will lead you is actually through the other side, not only into an experience of healing and empowerment for yourself, but also into kind of the pulling together of a particular set of ingredients and uh, concoction that is then kind of yours and yours only to give back to the world. Hmm. How have you been wounded by fatherhood? And what has it taught you so far? Oh, boy. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. So for, yeah, for our listeners, I... Um, Actually, today is my daughter's nine-month birthday. Uh, yeah, so that's a fun coincidence. But uh, and she's our first, so so I am new to this fatherhood journey over the past year, hmm. and it has definitely brought me into my vulnerability. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It has. Uh, it's taken away my sleep in many moments. It has uh, required me to release my attachments and my ideas or my control over, you know, my schedule or the thing I want to be paying attention to right now, or, you know, uh, my precious, um, hours of my morning routine that I use to get, you know, ready for the day. Oh God, oh, 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 that's going to change, you know, when, um, a newborn comes into the picture and at least, you know, I chose that. Uh, and I do choose that in that, like, I want to be a present dad i want to be uh available and engaged to support my daughter to support my wife and yet i also have these parts of myself that are so important too and so it's been a real challenge for me a real growth experience for sure to uh yeah to kind of endeavor to hold all of that or, and actually it hasn't been holding it all. Some of the best things I've been, I've been able to do is drop and let go of things. But this walking, this line of how do I stay dedicated to my own aliveness, my own essence, my own purpose, and you know, my, my work, which I'm very passionate about and also my own mental health and personal time and time with friends, all these things, while also really showing up fully in the way I want to show up by for this new responsibility that has stretched me and that has humbled me deeply. It's helped me really encounter over and over again, the tendency I have to think I can do way more than I actually can, or think that I need less than I actually need. So in the worst moments, that's looked like complete meltdown. Like I've more of these moments the past nine months than, than probably the several years prior of just like being totally at, the end of my rope. That's part of the humbling aspect. And then part of the gift of that has been choosing to come back around again to trust and openness and curiosity and wondering, okay, how is all of this for me? How am I unconsciously creating these circumstances to continue and deepen my own growth and development? And wow, I've gotten a lot from that. And it's actually helping me to operate a lot more efficiently, to be Can a lot give an more example? discerning. Yeah. Of like, of like a, a way or something, an insight that came up? Uh, 
an insight that came up about, can you, sorry, clarify the question again? So, so an insight as to how you've been creating the conditions for ending up at the end of your rope or the end of your tether. Yeah. Often it comes back. The big one for me is going back to those patterns around thinking I can do more than I can, or thinking I need less than I need. And I think about that as one of my, that is, that is one of my core, the core patterns of my kind of central repeating patterns of my personality. And when I have those moments of, of, so what, yeah, part of what I mean by that is my ego is really adept at keeping me away from my neediness. There's kind of an, uh, like an underlying architecture to my personality structure that that's a, a story that, you know, to be loved and, and valued, I need to be good, I need to be helpful, and I need to give to others and not have needs of my own. And by virtue of that, you know, my mind has become very adept over my, over my 35 years of life to like keep my neediness in my blind spot, to kind of like keep me away from seeing it. And when I don't see it and don't act as though it's there, that's how I burn myself out. That's how I end up at those moments at the end of my rope. So this experience of fatherhood has just like helped me be a lot less able to get away with that. Uh, I've gotten better at being honest with myself about what I need and being willing to do the uncomfortable thing of, of being needy so that I can show up as my best self in all of my roles. Yeah, I, I really like that. And it, it reminds me of, we did a light dark experience a, a few, a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. And one of their, they, they called these darkotypes. And one of the core like darkotypes was what they called the needy wretch. And it was interesting to explore all the ways that we, that I actually like judge, reject, ignore, be like, no, like that's, that's just bad. That's not helpful <laughs> without actually seeing the, what you just pointed to, which is like the, the inherent gifts that the needy wretch, which we all have to some degree or, or other is actually pointing at like, no, actually you have these desires and these needs and they contribute to your aliveness and therefore the aliveness of everyone around you. And that was, that was interesting for me too. I think that's one that was also in, is still to some degree in my shadow. Like mm -hmm. the idea of like appearing like a whiny little bitch is just like, it's like repulsive. It's like, oh no, I wouldn't, <laughs> don't, don't go there. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You and me both brother. Yeah. yeah. And yet there's such gift to that one, mm -hmm. as you're saying, as you're pointing to. Yeah. So one more yeah, theme I'd be curious to explore. And this actually came up for me. I was listening to a wonderful podcast called The Emerald, and he did an episode called Animism is Normative Consciousness, which sounds like a bit of a mouthful. But listening to this like two hour long episode, I was like, whoa, like this guy has, has a really good point. And, and I know that part of what you share through your leadership training and through your coaching is basically this like, or the way that I interpreted it was like this experiment of try understanding the world through a more animist lens and that that is actually a worthwhile perspective to inhabit. And the question I have for you is, is both what is the value in that and, and how is it distinguishable in your mind from the kind of new agey superstition kind of like how is that different mm. in your world and, and what is the value mm. tell me just a little bit more of what you mean by the new agey superstition so i mean it's the kind of stuff that you see on honestly on like instagram reels a lot of the time 
where there is no, or at least in my interpretation, a lot of the time, no substance and no kind of, certainly no no rigor and not really much, I'd say, healthy skepticism in this stuff. It feels fluffy. It feels amorphous. It feels like, yeah, like, like has bypassy. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I struggle to actually define it, but I know it when I see it and I, I imagine you do as well. I'm with you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And it's a really, another really good question. So yeah, kind of starting at the basic level of, you know, what is animism? Animism is a way of viewing and experiencing the world from which life forms and beings, all life forms and beings, and specifically beyond the human are experienced as, as animate, as sentient and conscious actors. So, you know, for me, I always had like the, you know, growing up as a kid, just playing in the mountains and my family wasn't particularly animist or anything like that. I mean, but I always had this sense of like, yeah, like there's an intelligence to nature. And Mm -hmm. I actually think, you know, there's an interconnectedness to all life. And then something I was challenged by on my first vision quest is like, well, what if you actually acted as though you believed that? How would that change the way you go out into nature? And for me, what changed is I, I opened myself to actually being in conversation with the more than human world. And that, especially at first, was a, a great challenge for me. I had, you know... <laughs> some loyal protector parts of myself who had learned at a young age that it wasn't okay to be weird and that being weird at school was going to cause bad outcomes. And, and so it's be the crazy guy. Yeah. Fit in and be normal. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I was out on my first quest and starting to like having conversations with like the trees and the rocks and, and then these <laughs> parts of myself, like screaming at me, dude, like hopefully nobody's watching this right now. You know, like, oh God, you someone's make recording sure you're this. Exactly. Post it on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I love what Josh Ray is doing there with the Enroll podcast uh, and that argument, that point he makes of, of actually, what if this is normative consciousness? And for me and how, how animism plays into my work is, well, first of all, I think it's helpful to, I like to cite Charles Eisenstein, who I know you've had on this podcast, who speaks about the old story of separation and the wound of separation, this story of seeing ourselves as completely separate from the rest of the world. And then he he calls us into maybe maybe the discovery of a new story around interbeing. And he's one of many, many teachers and, and wise people out there who remind us and uh, traditions all over the world, wisdom traditions remind us, you know, yeah, it's that viewing ourselves as separate and different. That's actually the source of so many of our ills in our time. And so if we want to be impact driven leaders, especially if we want to endeavor into this kind of great unknown territory of what does it look like to make positive impact on the world from above the line, from a place of openness, curiosity, and trust, I believe part of that involves actually recognizing and acknowledging that we are not separate. We are inherently part of this earth and we are of this earth. We're born of this earth. Like the earth is our home. The wild is our home originally, you know, and we've separated ourselves from it in, in many ways in modern society, but innately that sense of, of wildness and, and being at home in the wild is still in all of us. And therefore, the ability to be in conversation and in communion with the more than human world, I I believe, is as well. And, you know, yeah, so as we get into this, we handicap ourselves if we 
don't take advantage of that intelligence. There's so much wisdom, there's so much power, there's so much insight that's available in conversing with the natural world and then and then also conversing with, you know, maybe the more kind of bigger archetypal spiritual entities out there that I believe nature can be is often a conduit for. And then to your, to your quote to bring in, you know, to circle back to the new age spirituality piece and the bypassing thing. Yeah, you know, it, it is something that I see happening too, as we kind of are experiencing this consciousness revolution and more and more people are having awakening experiences through psychedelics or breath work or meditation or whatever avenue, people are waking up to the fact that we can, as human beings, contact the divine and we can converse directly with the divine. And that's amazing. That's beautiful. I think that's generally a very good thing where I think it gets that quality of kind of like untrustworthiness or sort of flimsiness and not rigorous that you're pointing at is when, when people are kind of only focusing on the exciting, nice, happy stuff of like the, of that connection with the divine without pairing it with the appropriate rigor of doing their own work essentially and like tracking their own egos and a lot of what that comes down to and this is part of why i love again the work of jim and diana and conscious leadership group and a way that i use their tool sets a lot in my work is again part of what it means to be below the line in a state of threat is we're committed to being right it's important to us that we're right about what we're saying or what we believe when we're above the line in a state of trust and presence being right, it doesn't feel important. And we are kind of just like wandering in the mystery almost. We don't know what's going to happen next. And that's no problem. We're not sure if what we, we can't be entirely sure if what we heard was uh, something the tree said to me or something that I made up. There's like a humility in, in that. And then there's also a discernment that we can build over time to sort of identify what does the voice of the ego sound like and feel like, and what does a voice sound like and feel like that comes from outside of ourselves. It sounds like it's acceptable if it's, if you feel safe and if you feel at home in your body. So, and spiritual bypassing for, you know, just to kind of get a definition out there of what, of this term we're talking about, you know, how I define spiritual bypassing is it's, we spiritual bypass when we are using our connection to spirituality or the divine to bypass or get around or escape actually facing something that's uncomfortable. You know, our inner darkness, our shadow, our patterns, our fear. So in that sense, we are actually kind of really almost shooting ourselves in the foot because within whatever that discomfort is, is actually like tremendous wisdom and uh, learning for us to have. And then not to mention that it's kind of only through the path of like being devoted to really welcoming all of that darkness and kind of bringing it in and loving it and being aware of it, that that's how we become trustworthy in this work. And then I think it's also worthwhile to talk about sort of there's a, another direction, another pitfall too, is spiritual materialism, which is using our connection to the divine as a way to inflate our own egos and sort of show everybody else like how awesome we are. And that's, I think, a lot of what you also see on Instagram. And we as human beings, yeah, we actually have like a pretty good generally radar for this kind of thing. Like it's like, ah, something about that doesn't feel trustworthy. And we can't always 
exactly know we make up some story about what it is but often i believe it's a signal that there's one or both of those two things going on so animism from above the line to me this that looks like a humble and curious and open exploration that says you know i know i don't have all the answers i know there's something way bigger going on than i can possibly wrap my mind around and like from that place i'm really dedicated to seeking guidance from the more than human world while also not making myself special or better than others because that's something i'm doing or because you know i had certain xyz amazing spiritual experience. It's like remembering that that doesn't make me special or better than that. That just makes me a human. And we all have this capacity. We all have this possibility. And I'm kind of following my own adventure here and fully engrossed in that and fully dedicated to kind of, yeah, like spreading my arms wide and kind of gathering all the wisdom and the resourcing that I can to try to create what I want to create in the world. But really being dedicated to catching myself whenever I make that mean something about me or whenever I am using that to avoid facing my shit. <laughs> uh, and this is a, this is part of why it's so important to be in conscious community around this work because uh, we're all human. We all have blind spots. We're all prone to both bypassing and materialism on the spiritual path. And so it's so valuable to surround ourselves with other people who, with whom we have a conscious agreement to kind of help keep each other honest and help us help each other see our blind spots and really, really welcome that and celebrate that and like ask for it because we know how important that is for our learning. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's rare. And I think that topic particularly could be the subject of a whole whole other podcast because there's so, there's so much there. I'd love to transition into a few rapid fire questions and then we will uh, begin to close. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, first question, what is a starting point for someone listening who is looking to deepen their connection with the natural world? Mm. I would say a great starting point is to go out on a soul centric nature wander. So find a place near where you live where you can go out into nature and the wilder, the better, you know, if it is, if you can make it to a place where you're unlikely to see other human beings, that's great, but also obviously be safe and, and do what you can and begin a conversation with nature. So make a conscious choice to enter into an, a, a sacred state of consciousness, maybe where you avoid, for example, contact or conversation with other people and a great place to start is what Bill and Animus Valley Institute call a praise walk. And that's essentially just going out and speaking out loud to nature, what you appreciate about it and finding specific beings, you know, maybe a, a, maybe a blossoming tree or a waves crashing in the ocean and just say hello, maybe introduce yourself and, and just offer a compliment and maybe some gratitude. Like, wow, I really appreciate the depth of your pink flower color or you know when i hear your waves crashing i feel a softening and relaxing through my whole body that's a great place to start that reminds me of something that dr martin shaw says where he, he's like 
the world doesn't want to be saved by you, but it does seek to be admired. And I thought that was a beautiful statement. Yeah. yeah that reciprocity is, is really so central to all of this. And I think we, we cannot underestimate the value of that. One more thing I'll add for, for the nature wander too, is, is to the extent that you can really drop into your intuitive navigation system in terms of where you choose to go. So often we go out into nature and we have like a goal of like, Oh, I'm going to get to the end of that trail or the top of that mountain. And that actually takes us out of presence and so an alternative is to let yourself be guided. A guide I work with likes to say, you know, follow your belly button, let your belly button lead you maybe wander off trail. If you can do so safely and just see what you discover, let yourself be dis surprised. Does it matter if you have an, an innie or an Audi? <laughs> yeah, not that I've seen. <laughs> I like that question. <laughs> okay. What has been the most transformative practice or modality for your own personal growth and development? Mm, well, I would say uh, for me, it's actually been like the single modality that has been most transformative for me has been conscious leadership and specifically the, the practice of constantly paying attention to locating myself above or below the line, looking at what I mean by that is, you know, how am I relating to what's happening, choosing to focus more on how am I relating to what's happening than what are the details of what's happening and asking the question, am I relating to my current circumstances from a state of threat below the line or a state of trust above the line? I love that practice because it's applicable to literally anything, any circumstances, any moment in my life, I can be doing this practice. I'm doing it right now. Then there's a whole, you know, of course there's a whole depth and complexity to the practice, but when I locate myself, below the line, when I notice I'm in a state of threat, I'm dedicated to paying attention to that, exploring that, bringing awareness and acceptance to that instead of, and I just, as often as I'm willing, I'll just drop whatever other agenda I had in the moment. Cause when we're in a state of threat, when we're below the line, when we're scared, we always have an agenda. There's something we believe we need to fix something or get something right or do something different for things to get better. But then it's like this short circuiting of like, oh, wait, no, I just am below the line. That's what's going on. Oh, okay. I'm scared. That means I'm detached from my wisdom. I'm in an altered state. I'm not seeing the world clearly. Let me just come home and pay attention to myself and do what it takes for me to come back to an open state of trust and then turn my attention back to whatever was happening. So transformative. I love it. Jim yesterday described it as safing yourself, which I thought was great. Yeah. <laughs> really appreciated that framing. Mm -hmm. What is, this might be related, what is one book that has shaped your worldview more than any other? Yeah, I think I'll choose a different direction there. And that's, um, that'll be the work of Bill Plotkin. And if there's one book, I would say it's, it's his newest one, The Journey of Soul Initiation. But the... Frameworks that Bill offers, you know, like the framework I named earlier today about, you know, the difference between an adolescent ego and an adult ego has done so much for me in terms of putting into context the world that I live in and the culture that I live in. I remember first reading Bill's, Bill's work and he has several books, you know, the, this newest one wasn't out yet when I was first starting to read, but I remember reading him and thinking like, oh my God, like, yeah. 
This is why, you know, like he's putting language to something I've sensed and felt my entire life about like what feels off or missing or yeah, from our dominant society. And this was like, especially in my early twenties when I was again, that sort of high performing, high achieving kid. And my first job out of college was I went and worked at a top tier management consulting firm. I had a job that like, it seemed like everybody wanted as like super prestigious. And I had this experience of no personal side to anybody there, but like looking at the senior leadership of that firm and feeling like there's gotta be something more than this. Like this isn't what I want to aspire to. These are great people who I respect and appreciate in many ways, but like, is that really what, you know, we're aspiring to? Like, there's got to be something more. So Bill bringing in these ideas of what it really means to have an adult ego, let alone a, to be a true elder, something that, that I think is sorely missing in our society, and that the path to that kind of potential, to that kind of growth and expansion and development being, being in kind of inherently going through reconnecting with nature, opening up to an animate world, and allowing ourselves to kind of let our egos die and disintegrate and be reborn. That changed everything for me. It's a nice segue to the last question, which is what is your greatest aspiration for the work or impact that you're making in the years mm. and decades to come? Mm. Yeah. So my greatest aspiration for starlight leadership and for my work is to create an ecosystem and a really thriving community and ecosystem of leaders who are driven by impact, who want to create a more beautiful world, who are also fully awake to the wild world as an animate, conscious, sentient metropolis, and are practiced and devoted to being in constant conversation with the more than human worlds and adept at seeking guidance uh, from that world. And then who are also really uh, devoted and dedicated to a practice of awareness and acceptance of their own consciousness. Like I was saying about conscious leadership and above or below the line who are dedicated to leading from above the line and catching those pitfalls like uh, spiritual bypassing or spiritual materialism. Right now I, I run a three month program uh, once or twice a year that I call Power Awakening, the Power Awakening Quest. It's a three-month group journey that centers around a, a week-long vision quest in the center of it and brings in a lot of conscious leadership tools and other, other tools along the way to kind of start to create this mix of ingredients. And as I am seeing, we're, we're coming towards the end of our second cohort of the program. Now it's still relatively new, uh, but both cohorts so far have just been a tremendous amount of fun and tremendously successful in terms of the results uh, created by the participants and the depth and extent and also staying power of the transformations and the shifts that they've created for themselves through this journey. It's deeply inspiring. And then I'm also watching them go out into the world and encounter this challenge of like, wow, I'm really different now. I've changed and a lot of my life hasn't, or, you know, I'm coming from this different state of consciousness, this expanded place. And most people I'm around are not yet. That's a difficult thing. So what I get really excited about is uh, nurturing over time, you know, through graduates of that program and otherwise this, this community, this ecosystem of, 
all these amazing people who are giving their soul's gift to the world, finding their way to that unique sort of medicine that they've found through their own healing journey, the, the gift of their own wounds, and doing so together, doing so with each other and in support of of each other. And I envision this as a, a community that is inherently so resilient and so adaptable and to the extent of even being immune to almost any challenge or catastrophe or strife that might occur. And my hope is that in some small way, that community can then contribute to helping our planet, helping our species, helping our collective come through all of the wild, challenging, chaotic, and crazy circumstances of this time and create a more beautiful future. Hmm. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure, Brooks. Thank you so much for your time. For listeners who may be interested or if some of these things resonated with, with them, maybe they're going through a <laughs> crisis right now, uh, what would be some good ways to learn more about you, get in touch, learn more about some of the things that you just mentioned? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. It's been such a pleasure being here with you today. And um, best way to get in touch is uh, first and foremost, my website, starlightleadership.com. And also uh, you can follow my writing on Substack, starlightleadership.substack.com. And please feel free to reach out. I'd love to connect and uh, look forward to meeting you. Thank you. And all the links will be in the show notes as well. All right, well, I'd like to close, as I usually do, with this line from Rilke. And he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that is most alive for you right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Beautiful quote. The question that's most alive for me right now is, comes back to... How can I nourish myself even more deeply as I remain dedicated to this work? As I mentioned, as I shared with the, the piece around fatherhood. Yeah. And then it's up this week in particular, because unfortunately my wife broke her wrist last week. She's okay, but it's been a lot where we've been, yeah, stretched thin to say the least. And, and so just continuing to deepen into this, uh, curiosity around, uh, what do I really need to nourish me so that I can show up as my best self in all of my roles? And for the listeners, <laughs> the question I'd like to leave you with is it's a question of what if. So I think I may have conveyed, you know, some views of the world or some possibilities that might sound kind of out there or crazy, you know, this stuff around animism or what it really means to be a psychological adult or. Uh, this idea that we each of us have our own unique souls, purpose, and opportunity to make an exquisitely unique impact on the world. My question that I'd love to leave with you is, you know, what if that were the case for you? And what if there could be something even more exquisite, even more alive, even more magical and mysterious and wonderful that's a possibility that's waiting for you um, and always has been waiting for you? What if? And how would that change the way you live your life? Brooks Barron, thank you so much for your time. So welcome, Johnny. It's been such a gift. Appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. Thanks for listening.